Chapter 14 of Nan Sherwood at Pine Camp. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniela Austin. Nan Sherwood at Pine Camp by Annie Rowe Carr. Chapter 14 At the Lumber Camp. Nan said nothing just then about her queer little visitor. Aunt Kate asked her when she came out of the East Room and crossed the chill desert of the parlor to the general sitting room, Did you have a nice sleep, Nanny? Goodness, Auntie, laughed Nan. I got over taking a nap in the daytime a good while ago, I guess. But you come and see what I've done. I haven't been idle. Aunt Kate went and peeped into the East Chamber. Good mercy, child. It doesn't look like the same room with all the pretty didos, she said. And that's your pretty mamma in the picture on the mantel? My, your papa looks peaked, doesn't he? Maybe that sea voyage they're taking will do them both good. Nan had to admit that beside her uncle and cousins, her father did look peaked. Robust health and bronze seemed to be the two essentials in the opinion of the people of Pine Camp. Nan was plump and rosy herself, and so escaped criticism. Her aunt and uncle, and the two big boys as well, were as kind to her as they knew how to be. Nan could not escape some of the depression of homesickness during the first day or two of her visit to the wood settlement, but the family did everything possible to help her occupy her mind. The long evenings were rather amusing, although the family knew little about any game save checkers, fox and geese, and hickory dickory dock. Nan played droughts with her uncle and fox and geese and the other kindergarten games with her big cousins. To see Tom, with his eyes screwed up tight and the pencil poised in his blunt, frost-cracked fingers over the slate, while he recited in a bass sing-song, Hickory Dickory Dock, the mouth strain up the clock. The clock struck one, and down he come, Hickory Dickory Dock, with side-splitting. Nan laughed till she cried. Poor simple Tom did not know just what amused his little cousin so. Rafe was by no means so slow, or so simple. Nan caught him cheating more than once at fox and geese. Rafe was a little sly, and he was continuously making fun of his slow brother, and baiting him. Uncle Henry warned him, Now, Rafe, you're too big for your marm or me to shingle your pants, but Tom's likely to lick you some day for your cutting up, and I shan't blame him. Just because he's slow to wrath, don't get in your head that he's afraid, or that he can't settle your hash in five minutes. Nan was greatly disturbed to hear so many references to fistic encounters and fighting of all sorts. These men of the woods seemed to be possessed of wild and unruly passions. What she heard the boys say caused her to believe that most of the spare time of the men in the lumber camps was spent in personal encounters. No, no, dearie, they aren't so bad as they sound, Aunt Kate told her comfortably. Lots of nice men work in the camps all their lives and never fight. Look at your Uncle Henry. But Nan remembered the mess of words, as he called it that Uncle Henry had had with Gedna Raffer on the railroad station platform at the Forks. And she was afraid that even her aunt did not look with the same horror on a quarrel that Nan herself did. The girl from Tilbury had a chance to see just what a lumber camp was like, and what the crew were like, on the fourth day after her arrival at her Uncle Henry's house. The weather was then pronounced settled, and word came for the two young men, Tom and Rafe, to report at Blackton's camp the next morning, prepared to go to work. Tom drove a team, which was then at the lumber camp, being cared for by the cook and foreman. Rafe was a chopper, 
for he had that slight with an axe which more than mere muscle makes the mighty woodsman. Their dad'll drive him over to Blackton's early, and you can go too, said Aunt Kate. That is, if you don't mind getting up right promptly in the morning. Oh, I don't mind that, Nan declared. I'm used to getting up early. But she thought differently when Uncle Henry's heavy hand rapped on the door of the East Chamber so early the next morning that it seemed to Nan Sherwood that she had only been in bed long enough to close her eyes. Goodness, Uncle, she muttered when she found out what it meant. What time is it? Three o'clock. Time enough for you to dress and eat a snack before we start, replied her uncle. Well, said Nan to herself, I thought the house was afire. Uncle Henry heard her through the door and whispered shrilly, Shh! Don't let your aunt hear you say anything like that, child. Like what? queried Nan, in wonder. About fire. Remember, added Uncle Henry rather sternly, Nan thought, as he went back to the kitchen. Then Nan remembered what the strange little girl, Margaret Llewellyn, had said about the fire at Pale Lick that had burned her uncle's former home. Nan had not felt like asking her uncle or aunt, or the boys either, about it. The latter had probably been too young to remember much about the tragedy. Although Nan had seen Margaret on several fleeting occasions since her first interview with the woods girl, there had been no opportunity of talking privately with her, and Margaret would only come to the window. She was afraid to tell Marm Sherwood how she had lost the new dress that had been given to her. It was now as black outside Nan's window as it could be. She lit her oil lamp and dressed swiftly, running at last through the cold parlor and sitting room into the kitchen, where the fire in the range was burning briskly and the coffee pot was on. Tom and Rafe were there, comfortably getting into thick woolen socks and big lumberman's boots. There was a heaping pan of Aunt Kate's donuts on the table, flanked with the thick china coffee cups and deep saucers. Her uncle and the boys always poured their coffee into the saucers and blew on it to take the first heat off, then gulped it in great draughts. Nan followed suit this morning, as far as cooling the coffee in the saucer went. There was haste. Uncle Henry had been up some time, and now he came stamping into the house, saying that the ponies were hitched in and were standing in readiness upon the barn floor, attached to the pung. "'We've twenty-five miles to ride, you see, Nanny,' he said. "'The boys have to be at Blackton's so as to get to work at seven. They filled the thermos bottle that had so puzzled Tom, and then sallied forth. The ponies were just as eager as they had been the day Nan had come over from the forks. She was really half afraid of them. It was so dark that she could scarcely see the half-cleared road before them as the ponies dashed away from Pine Camp. The sky was completely overcast, but Uncle Henry declared it would break at sunrise. Where the track had been well packed by former sleighs, the ponies' hooves rang as though on iron. The bits of snow that were flung off by their hooves were like pieces of ice. The bells on the harness jingled a very pretty tune, Nan thought. She did not mind the biting cold, indeed. Only her face was exposed. Uncle Henry had suggested a veil, but she wanted to see what she could. For the first few miles it remained very dark, however. Had it not been for the snow, they could not have seen objects beside the road at all. There was a lantern in the back of the pung, and that flung a stream of yellow light behind them but Uncle Henry would not have the radiance of it shot forward. A light just blinds you, he said. I'd rather trust to their own sense. The ponies galloped for a long way, it seemed to Nan. Then they came to a hill so steep that they were glad to drop to a walk. Their bodies steamed in a great cloud as they tugged the sleigh up the slope. Dark woods shut the road in on either hand. 
Nan's eyes had got used to the faint light so that she could see this at least. Suddenly she heard a mournful, long-drawn howl, seemingly at a great distance. Must be a farm somewhere near, she said to Rafe, who sat beside her on the back seat. Nope, no farms around here, Nan, he returned. But I hear a dog howl, she told him. Rafe listened too. Then he turned to her with a grin on his sharp face that she did not see. Oh, no, you don't, he chuckled. That's no dog. Again the howl was repeated, and it sounded much nearer. Nan realized, too, that it was a more savage sound than she had ever heard emitted by a dog. What is it, she asked, speaking in a low voice to Rafe. Wolves, responded her cousin maliciously. But you mustn't mind a little thing like that. You don't have wolves down round where you live, I suppose. Nan knew that he was attempting to plague her, so she said, Not for pets, at least, Rafe. These sound awfully savage. They are, returned her cousin calmly. The wolf cry came nearer and nearer. The ponies had started on a trot again at the top of the hill, and her uncle and Tom did not seem to notice the ugly cry. Nan looked back and was sure that some great animal scrambled out of the woods and gave chase to them. Isn't there some danger? she asked Rafe again. Not for us, he said. Of course, if the whole pack gathers and catches us, then we have to do something. What do you do? demanded Nan quickly. Why, the last time we were chased by wolves, we happened to have a ham and a side of bacon along. So we chucked out first the one and then the other, and so pacified the brutes, till we got near town. Oh, cried Nan, half believing, half in doubt. She looked back again. There, into the flickering light of the lantern, a gaunt, huge creature leaped. Nan could see his head and shoulders now and then as he plunged on after the sleigh, and a wickeder-looking beast she hoped never to see. Oh, she gasped again, and grabbed at Rafe's arm. Don't you be afraid, drawled the young rascal. I reckon he hasn't many of his jolly companions with him. If he had, of course, we'd have to throw you out to pacify him. That's the rule. Youngest and prettiest goes first. Like the ham, I suppose, sniffed Nan in some anger. And just then Tom reached over the back of the front seat and seized his brother by the shoulder with a grip that made Rafe shriek with pain. Nan was almost as startled as was Rafe. In the half-darkness Tom's dull face blazed with anger, and he held his writhing brother as though he were a child. You ornery scamp, he said almost under his breath. You try to scare that little girl and I'll break you in two. Nan was horrified. She begged Tom to let his brother alone. I was only fooling her, snarled Rafe, rubbing his injured shoulder, for Tom had the grip of a pipe wrench. Uncle Henry never turned around at all, but he said, If I had a gun, I'd be tempted to shoot that old wolfhound of Toby Vandervillers. He's always running after sleds and yelling his head off. Nan was glad the creature following them was not really a wolf, but she knew she should be just as much afraid of him if she met him alone, as though he really were a wolf. However, mostly, she was troubled by the passionate nature of her two cousins. She had never seen Tom show any anger before, but it was evident that he had plenty of spirit if it were called up. And she was, secretly, proud that the slow-witted young giant should have displayed his interest in her welfare so plainly. Rafe sat and nursed his shoulder in silence for several miles. The cold was intense. As the sky lightened along the eastern horizon, it seemed to Nan as though the frost increased each moment. The bricks at their feet were getting cool, and they had already had recourse to the thermos bottle, which was now empty of the gratefully hot drink it had contained. 
As the light gradually increased, Nan saw Rafe watching her with sudden attention. After his recent trick, she was a little afraid of Rafe. Still, it did not seem possible that the reckless fellow would attempt any second piece of fooling so soon after his brother's threat. But suddenly Rafe yelled to his father to pull down the roans, and as the pony stopped, he reached from the sled into a drift and secured a big handful of snow. Seizing Nan quickly round the shoulders, he began to rub her cheek vigorously with the snow. Nan gasped and almost lost her breath, but she realized immediately what Rafe was about. The frost had nipped her cheek, and her cousin had seen the white spot appear. The rubbing stung awfully, and the girl could not keep back the tears, but she managed to repress the sobs. There, exclaimed Rafe. You are a plucky girl. I'm sorry I got some of that snow down your neck, Nan. Couldn't help it. But it's the only thing to do when the thermometer is 32 degrees below zero. Why, a fellow went outside with his ears uncovered at Drewmacher's camp one day last winter, and after a while he began to rub his ears, and one of them dropped off just like a cake of ice. Stop your lying, boy, commanded his father. It isn't as bad as that, Nan. But you want to watch out for frostbite here in the woods just the same as we had to watch out for the automobiles in crossing those main streets in Chicago. With the sun rising over the low ridge of wooded ground to the east, the camp in the hollow was revealed, the smoke rising in a pillar of blue from the sheet-iron chimney of the cookhouse, smoke rising too from a dozen big horses being curried before the stables. Most of the men had arrived the night before. They were tumbling out of the long, low bunkhouse now and making good use of the bright tin wash basins on the long bench on the covered porch. Ice had been broken to get the water that was poured into the basins, but the men laved their faces and their hairy arms and chest in it as though it were summer weather. They quickly ran in for their outer shirts and coats, however, and then trooped into the end of the cook shed where the meals were served. Tom turned away to look over his horses and see that they were all ready for the day's work. Rafe put up the roan ponies in a couple of empty stalls and gave them a feed of oats. Uncle Henry took Nan by the hand, and really she felt as though she needed some support. She was so stiff from the cold, and led her into the warm room where the men were gathering for the hearty meal the cook and his helper had prepared. The men were boisterous in their greeting of Uncle Henry until they saw Nan. Then, some bashfully, some because of natural refinement, lowered their voices and were more careful how they spoke before the girl. But she heard something that troubled her greatly. An old, grizzled man in a corner of the fireplace, where the brisk flames leaped high among the logs, and who seemed to have already eaten his breakfast and was busily stoning an axe blade, looked up as Nan and her uncle approached, saying, "'Seen Ged Raffner lately, Hen?' "'I saw him at the forks the other day, Toby,' Mr. Sherwood replied. "'Yeah, I heard about that,' said the old man drawlingly. But since then? No. Well, he was telling me that he'd got you on the hip this time, Hen. If you as much as put your hoof over on that track he's fighting you about, he'll plop you in jail. That's what he'll do. He's got a warrant all made out by Judge Perkins. I seen it. Uncle Henry walked closer to the old man and looked down at him from his great height. Tobe, he said, you know the rights of that business well enough. You know whether I'm right in a contention or whether Ged's right. You know where the old line runs. Why don't you tell? Oh, mercy me, croaked the old man, and in much haste. I ain't going to get into no land squabble, no, sir. You can count me out right now. And he picked up his axe, restored the wet stone to its sheath on the wall, and at once went out of the shack. 
End of chapter 14. Recording by Daniela Austin.